Okay, we are in chapter 6 of our study in uh, the Garden of Eden, the glory of heaven, and we're talking about uh, the two great central uh, features of the Abrahamic covenant in terms of the assurance that God supplied regarding uh, the fulfillment of that covenant. And uh, these consist of a pledge and a sign. The pledge, of course, as we saw last time, is God passing between the pieces of the animals in Genesis chapter 15, and by that act, swearing on his own life that um, uh, he would fulfill and keep the promise to Abraham that he would have a son. And so what we see is that just as the animals were slaughtered um, and killed uh, when a covenant was made and people passed between the pieces, they were saying, let me be slaughtered like these animals if I do not keep my word. And so God was swearing on his own life that he would keep uh, his promise and pledge to Abraham to give him the land, the seed, and the blessing. And so we see also in that pledge uh, that there was the first clear declaration in the scriptures of justification by faith alone. We see in Genesis 15 where it says Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. And so righteousness is imputed when faith is exercised in God and the seed that he is going to provide, namely the Lord Jesus. And Paul picked this up in Romans chapter 4, and he said in Romans chapter 4, the same kind of faith that Abraham has is the same kind of faith we have. The salvation he had is the same as the salvation we have. The justification he had is the same as the justification we have. And so there's only one plan of salvation from the start. The content of faith certainly increased over time as the revelation regarding the seed unfolded. But the essential object of faith never changed. We always believed in God who had promised the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and all of his work in our lives. And so God, as the one who saves us through the seed of the woman, has always been the essential object of faith. Let me repeat that. God is the one who saves us through the seed of the woman, has always been the essential object of faith. Now, I don't know if it's ever disturbed you or not, but I remember as a young believer, I was kind of disturbed by reading some passages that say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then I would read other passages that says, believe in God and you'll be saved. And I thought, well, which is it? And the answer is, it's the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus, who is the object of our faith. And we never believe in God apart from Jesus, and we never believe in Jesus apart from the God who gave Jesus. Okay? Now, for an example, let me turn to um, to, uh, uh, John chapter... Six. (coughs) 
pardon me, John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 24. It says in John 5 and verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, now notice, and believeth on him that sent me, has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now, very specifically, it's presenting God the Father as the object of faith. Right? But God the Father who does what? God the Father who sent the Son. And so, God the Father as the object of faith is never seen as the object of faith apart from the seed whom He sends. And you see the same thing in John chapter 6. Notice verse 39. It says in John 6, 39 and 40, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So Jesus says at one point, if you believe in the Son, you'll have everlasting life. And He says at the other point, if you believe in the Father, you'll have everlasting life. What does it say about Abraham? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. So the question is, is what is the object of faith that saves? Is it the Father or is it the Son? And the answer is, it's the Father, but the Father who is never seen apart from the Son whom He gave, so that to believe in the Son is to believe in the seed that provides redemption. And to believe in the Father is to believe in the Father who provides the seed. And so, as long as, the, as God is not seen as divorced from Jesus Christ, then God is a suitable object of faith for salvation. Eric? That's right. Jesus said in John 14, He says, uh, you know, Philip says, Show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And, and Jesus says, Philip, hast thou been with me so long and hast not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? And so, <clears throat> you know, the point is, is that I've stressed many, 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 many times that the object of faith for salvation is Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely the truth. Because... You never believe in the Father for salvation apart from believing in the Father as the one who provided Jesus Christ. Because in what context is Abraham believing God and counting Him for righteousness? In the context of God the Father saying to Abraham, you're going to have a seed. You're going to have a son. And it's through the seed that He promised in Genesis 3.15 that we will be saved. So, For example, if you look at uh, Romans chapter 4, the book of Romans, the fourth chapter, it's the same thing. It says in verse 20 regarding Abraham, Romans 4.20, 
He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. And what God was promising to perform there was to give Abraham a child, a seed, right? Now notice verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him, God the Father, and notice there's not a period there. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So, you know, it's just important for you to notice that whenever God the Father is presented as the object of saving faith, he's always presented in immediate relationship with his son and never divorced from it. So, the Bible speaks of God our Savior. And so, when I assert that a general belief in God doesn't save anyone, lots of people say, I believe in God. Are they Christians? No, they're not Christians. Because a general belief in God doesn't save anyone. If we're going to be saved, we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Because apart from Him, there is no salvation. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And does God save? Yes, God saves. But He saves through His Son and by His Son. And apart from His Son, God never saves. And people who believe in a God that is not the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ are not believing in the God who saves, and that kind of belief in a God will not save. It is. And so, what was the promise of salvation in Genesis 3.15? It was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Who was going to send the seed of the woman? God the Father, who was making the promises to them right there in the garden, right? And so, don't be disturbed... When you run across these passages that say, you know, if we believe in God, we'll be saved. And you say to me, well, pastor, you've always told me and emphasized uh, very powerfully that if we don't believe in Jesus, we can't be saved. Well, I want you to notice that every time we're told that, that the Father is the object of faith, it's always the Father in relationship to the Son that is the object of faith. It is that Father we're called upon to believe in because you can't believe in him without believing in his son because they're of a peace. All right? I don't know if that solves a problem for you. Maybe you didn't have that problem, but I did. And uh, had to get that one solved many years ago. So it certainly does not negate the assertions I've made through the years that Christ is the object of faith. Even when the Father is presented the object of faith, He's presented as the object of faith in, in immediate relationship to the Son. Go ahead. Um, well, like what, you, what you're talking about in the Scripture where it talks about God our Savior, um, shouldn't that be a reference to Christ as well? Um, yes, because He is God. Right. But generally in the context, you know, most of the time when you run across the word God, it's either referring to the full Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, or most of the time, it's just referring to the Father. Okay. 
Now, is Jesus called God? Absolutely, he is. Okay? Um, it says, um, For the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present generation, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there, Jesus is called the great God. The great God, even our Savior, the Lord Jesus, it should be translated. My Lord and my God, yes. Right. Yeah, so there's many places where Jesus is called God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and so, uh, to say that we should believe in God. Uh, but clearly, in these passages that I read to you, God is distinguished from the Son. So therefore, God has to be a reference to the Father. Right. So... Um, we're still believing in the Son when we believe in the Father because it's the Father as the Father of the Son that is presented as the object of faith. Okay? My point is, only one plan of salvation from the start, the content of faith increased, but the essential object of faith did not change. God is the one who saves us through the seed of the woman has always been the essential object of faith. So when Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness, he didn't believe God apart from Jesus. He believed in the God who was going to supply Jesus through him. Because what did God say to, Genesis, to, to Abraham in Genesis 15? He says, look at the stars. They'll be, you know, your descendants will be as, as multitudinous as the stars. And Abraham believed God. So he believed God in relationship to the giving of the seed. All right. So that was the sign, and or pardon me, the pledge that was given. Now, today we want to start looking at um, page 88 in our book, uh, dealing with circumcision as a sign of the covenant. So the pledge of the covenant was um, God's swearing of an oath by passing between the animals and swearing on his own life to keep the promises. And the reason why God did that, by the way, was to reinforce Abraham's faith. Um, remember, Abraham was questioning God. God, how's this all going to work out? All I've got is this steward in my house. God says, I'm going to give you a son. And it says, Abraham believed God. But then God went on to strengthen Abraham's faith with this passing between the animals ritual. And, and he swore to Abraham on his own life, that he would give him that son. To just strengthen his faith. The second thing that God did to strengthen Abraham's faith in the fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant was this sign of circumcision. Now, <clears throat> this assurance that God gave to Abraham that he was going to fulfill his covenant promise was this visible sign of circumcision. And each of the signs that God gives in his covenants correspond to the nature of the covenant itself. And so God gave the rainbow in the cloud because he had something to say about clouds and rain, right? 
So the sign was related to the covenant and its nature. And so when God gives circumcision, we should understand that he gave that for a reason. And it's because it's related to the nature of that covenant. There's not supposed to be any rain anymore on the earth. It makes sense that we'd have a rainbow in clouds, right? Because we're not going to have the clouds raining water upon the earth to the point of completely flooding it anymore. And so when we look at the nature of the Abrahamic covenant and we look at the sign, we see the sign is, is directly related to the nature of the covenant. Now, circumcision is God's designated sign for the Abrahamic covenant because it expresses the nature of that covenant with which it is associated. And the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, establishes a personal relationship between Abraham and God. And so, the sign also is personal. It's not something that others see externally, but it is something that expresses an intimate relationship with God. It was a permanent mark on the flesh declaring that a person belonged to God. It was an irreversible work that could not be undone, just like the covenant was irreversible. Furthermore, circumcision was a mark on the body of Abraham associated with his reproductive capacity Because it was from his flesh that God said he would raise up a multitude of descendants and bring forth a seed that would bless all nations. And so, since the Abrahamic covenant, the very heart of it, was the bringing forth of a seed that would bless all nations, then the sign of the covenant was directly related to the issue of the seed. I mean, after all, where does the seed come from? It comes from the place where circumcision is done. And so the other thing about it is that the sign of the Noahic covenant was external for all to see because it was an external covenant. It was outward and it was physical. But the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was internal and hidden. Like regeneration is internal and hidden in the heart, circumcision is hidden in the body. It's not on display. Okay? And so the point is, is that just as God does a work in the secret place of the soul, namely in the heart, in regenerating it, the sign of that is, is, is a work that is done in the secret place of the body that's hidden. And so can I see God change your heart? Nope. Just like I don't see the sign of the covenant. It's hidden. Um, the other thing is, is that the work of the Abrahamic covenant is, is, is very intimate and personal, isn't it? And so the sign is very intimate, it's very personal. And of course, the Abrahamic covenant related to the coming of the seed, and so the sign is related to the seed as well. And so the hiddenness of it, the intimate personal nature of it, and the reproductive element of the bringing of the seed... All of those things are the reason why God chose circumcision as opposed to the cutting off of an earlobe as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, God could have put all kinds of marks in the body, right? Could have made an X on our forehead with a knife or cut off a finger or whatever. I mean, you can modify the body in lots of ways. But God chose to modify the body in this way to show the personal nature of the covenant, the fact that through it, 
a work would be done in the inner man and that through it the seed uh, would come. And that's why once the seed came, guess what? Circumcision was no longer necessary or required. It passed away because the sign that the, the thing that the sign pointed to arrived. I mean, it's just like if you're driving to Portland, right? From Albany, you see a sign that says Portland, 62 miles. And then you see another sign, Portland, 32 miles. You see another sign, Portland, 10 miles. When you get to Portland, there's no more signs because you've arrived at the destination. And so the sign of circumcision, which pointed to the seed that was to come, when you finally arrived at what the sign pointed to, you didn't need the sign anymore, right? And that's why under the new covenant, circumcision is no longer relevant as a sign because the thing that it pointed to, um, the, the primary thing it pointed to has, has passed away. So what is God promising to Abraham in Genesis 17? He's promising him a seed. So what does he do? He gives him a sign that is directly related to the production of the seed. And so the purpose of an outward sign is to indicate the inward reality of something that God has done. Now, when God gave to Abraham this sign in his flesh, he gave it to him in Genesis chapter 17. And what it pointed to was the fact that he was already regenerated in his heart, which we saw took place in Genesis chapter 15. And so this sign pointed to and confirmed a previously established reality. And so we see that Abraham was saved, and then he received the sign of his salvation. The outward mark on his flesh was pointing back to the work that was done in his heart, right? Now, what is it with baptism? Baptism points back to the previous work that God did in our hearts, right? And so baptism is the New Testament sign, just like circumcision was the Old Testament sign. And the outward act, symbolic act that we do, is supposed to point to an inward reality that's taken place. And so when Israel was circumcised in their flesh, that was to be a declaration of a change that was supposed to take place in their heart. Now, with Abraham, it had already taken place. It was retrospective. With all of Abraham's descendants, it was prospective. They were circumcised at eight days. Their hearts weren't regenerated at eight days. And that mark in their flesh was to be a constant reminder to them of the need they had for the change in the heart. Right? Thus, our memory verse. What's it say? And the Lord thy God, who's he talking to here? He's talking to a bunch of people who were circumcised in their flesh as infants. And he's saying, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed. And what will the result of that be? To love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. So the circumcision of the flesh of everyone after Abraham, the circumcision of Abraham's flesh was a sign of the faith he already had. The circumcision of the flesh of all of his descendants was a sign of the faith they needed to have. And so 
God says to them, um, I am going to do in the secret place of your heart what's already been done in the secret place of your bodies. Now we need to understand that the sign and the thing the sign represents are not necessarily the two things. You can have the sign and not have what it represents. Or you can have what it represents and not have the sign. Now Abraham had what circumcision represented before he was ever circumcised, right? He was regenerate and he wasn't circumcised. So he had what, what circumcision pictured without having the circumcision itself. On the other hand, you have someone like Ishmael or Esau. They were circumcised in the flesh, but they didn't have the inward reality, did they? They were unsaved people. And so we ha don't want to confuse the sign with the reality that it represents. Now, there's a lot of people today who are saved, genuinely born again, right? And they have not yet been baptized. And then there's a ton of people that have been baptized that have never been saved, right? So while the sign and the thing it represents are always supposed to be connected together, they aren't necessarily. And the sign doesn't cause the thing that it represents. So you can baptize somebody, but that doesn't cause their salvation. You can circumcise somebody, that doesn't cause the regeneration of their heart under the old covenant. And so the point is, is that um, the true Israelites were those who not only had circumcision in their flesh, but they also had it in their hearts. And that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 9, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And then he goes on and he says, just like Jacob and Esau, they were both Jews. They were both descendants of Jacob. Uh, pardon me, of Isaac. But one was saved and one wasn't, even though they were both circumcised. And so what he's saying is that within the larger community of people who have the sign of the covenant, there's a smaller group of people who actually possess the reality of the covenant. And that's true today, too. We've got, you know couple of billion baptized Christians in the world, but how many of them actually possess the reality of the new birth? Maybe 10% of them. So one of the problems in Jesus' day was that the Pharisees said, we be Abraham's seed, as though that made them God's favorite people. And Jesus says, if you were of your father Abraham, you would do the works of your father Abraham. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And so um, the point is, is that everyone who was circumcised was externally and physically in the Abrahamic covenant in terms of some of its external and material blessings. But not everyone that was circumcised inherited the spiritual blessings. Only those who had regenerate hearts, who were saved, experienced that. Now let's turn to the book of Colossians. We'll look at chapter uh, 3. 
pardon me, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Notice it says, um, verse 6, Colossians 2, 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. You don't need anything but Jesus. Okay? Everything you need is in Him. Which is the head of all principality and power, in whom, that is in Christ, noticed, also you are circumcised. Did you know you're all circumcised? You are. All. You are all circumcised. With the circumcision made, notice, without hands. Now, physical circumcision was made with human hands. Human hands did it. But we are all circumcised, men and women, in a circumcision made without hands. What does that circumcision consist of? Here it is. It consists in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, when circumcision takes place, there's a cutting off of a piece of the body and a casting away, and it dies, and it never comes back, right? And in the same way, when we're saved, there is a cutting off of the old nature from our lives. It's buried, and it never comes back. It's permanently separated from us. That's the circumcision made without hands is when God cuts out the old nature and and removes it from us and buries it. And it's gone. He says, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The one that consists in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. That's another term for the old nature. The body of the sins of the flesh. That's just a term for the old nature. By the circumcision of Christ. Christ does the circumcising. Now what's the symbol of that? Verse 12. Buried with Him in baptism. And so baptism is the replacement for circumcision. Under the new covenant. Baptism is the declaration that God has circumcised my heart. And so we don't circumcise people who have circumcised hearts. We baptize people who have circumcised hearts. That's what's changed under the new covenant. Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with Him. There's the idea of death, burial, and resurrection of the old nature, buried with Him in baptism, when you are risen with Him through faith of the operation of God who raised Him from the dead. So this then is the, the nature of this uh, pledge that God, or this sign, pardon me, that God gave to Abraham. Um, <clears throat> it is an outward sign that's supposed to point to an inward reality Unfortunately, it didn't for many of the children of Israel. 
And that's why the nation went apostate. And that's why the new Israel, the new nation that's made up exclusively of those who 100% of them have circumcised hearts, don't go apostate. Because we have all been circumcised in heart. So the point is, we don't trust in the sign. We look for the reality that the sign points to. And just like the Jews couldn't trust in circumcision, they had to look to the reality it pointed to, namely an inward heart relationship with God. In the same way, we don't trust in our baptism. We look to the reality it points to, namely the circumcision of our hearts. And if we have that, then our baptism is valid and meaningful. If we don't, it's just putting water on a corpse. It does nothing for us. So, there has to be a distinction made between the sign and the thing it represents. And the Jews didn't do that, and that's why they thought they could behave horribly, but because they had the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, they were Abraham's children and saved, like Abraham was. Not a chance. So don't think that the sign saves. The sign just says you need the reality that the sign points to. So basically what God was saying to Abraham is, look, through this sign, you're going to have a seed, you're going to have a change in the inward hidden part of your life, and you're going to have an intimate personal relationship with me, and that's what the sign pointed to. When the seed came, the sign wasn't necessary anymore, and that's why circumcision ceased, and now baptism has replaced it. The act of circumcision in the heart hasn't changed, right? Deuteronomy 36 is as valid today as it ever was. Because it says in Colossians 2, we still get circumcised, right? We still have the circumcision of heart. Had circumcision of heart under Abraham, have circumcision of heart now. That hasn't changed. The sign that points to that circumcision of heart has changed. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this wonderful sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham. Uh, Lord, thank you for the personal nature of it and for the prophetic Um, implications of it and the giving of the seed. And Lord, thank you that you do a work in the inner hidden part of our hearts, unseen by others, but nevertheless very real. And thank you, Father, that uh, through this sign, the seed was given and we have our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Lord, bless our understanding of the covenant as we proceed through it in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.